This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you, Dick, for that very, very kind introduction. And thanks, Pat, for taking the time to speak today. And thank, many thanks to everyone for being here. Uh, the, uh, so we've been talking a lot about fintech. And maybe we should start by taking a little rest from that before we come back to fintech. And let's talk about what's on top of everyone's mind, when, especially when they hear from you. And when they, when they think about you, the, the Fed president, the thought that comes to mind is inflation. Right. So what do you, uh, this week, uh, uh, Chair Yellen said on Tuesday, I think, that the Fed may have overstated the strength of the labor market and the rate of inflation. It has come down to, I think, this year to 1.4%. What do you think is happening on the inflation front? And are rate increases justified this year, next year? What's, what are your views? So, what's happening in monetary policy land? Uh, well, first, let me thank yeah, McCall, you and Dick. By the way, I'm still doing railroads. Instead of steel rails, they're financial <laughs> rails, right? They're rails of the payment system. So it's all railroading. Uh, and I want to thank Jalapa and the whole team and all our sponsors and, and supporters. This was a great conference. So what's happening in monetary policy? And I'll put the inflation picture in context. So if we think about GDP growth, GDP growth continues along just as we pretty much have anticipated, according to our forecast, running slightly above trend uh, around 2.3, You can pick a number somewhere north of 2. Uh, Q1 was weak. Q1 is always weak. Uh, you should recognize that we have a seasonal issue with measurement of GDP in quarter one. And so take that with a grain of salt. Q2 was just revised up slightly uh, to slightly over 3%, 3.1%. So in terms of GDP, things seem to be going along just fine. Now, of course, the devastation that we're seeing from these hurricanes is horrific devastation uh, is obviously uh, terrible for the people who are involved and our thoughts go out to them. But in terms of the economy as a whole, the best estimate right now is that we'll see about 100 basis point decline in GDP uh, this quarter, and then it'll bounce back to about 1.3% in the subsequent quarter, some number around there. So it will have an effect, but it'll be a transitory effect uh, as that works through the economy. So that's on the GDP front. Uh, on employment, I think the best uh, I can say, and by the way, everything I say are my views alone and the views of nobody else <laughs> in the Federal Reserve System or on the Federal Open Market Committee. But with respect to employment, we're running below what most people would think is the natural rate of unemployment. Um, the labor markets feel really tight. And that's not only in the data in terms of unemployment, but you look at the JOLTS data, the job opening and quits data, things are really tight. Uh, and you're hearing this. I mean, yes, the plural of anecdote is not data, but we're hearing this over and over and over again of the skills mismatch question. The companies can't find the skilled workers. And again, we're not talking about PhD economists and computer scientists. We're talking about truck mechanics, electricians, plumbers. You can go down the list. There's just a real, it's a very tight market. Now, we get to the inflation question. So if that's true, where did the Phillips curve go? Yeah. Right? What happened to it? Why did it just disappear? Uh, well, the conventional wisdom is it's flat, but it's been flat for a while, and that relationship between unemployment and inflation we're just not seeing. 
So what's happening with wages? Well, they are flat, but some recent work that was done by our colleagues in San Francisco point out the fact that if you look at somebody who's staying in a job for, for a sustained period of time, their wages are going up well above what we're seeing on average. It may be just a compositional shift. Part of the story of the wage issue is that we, the boomers, are retiring, high-priced boomers being replaced by lower-priced millennials, mm -hmm. and that that is keeping the average down for now. Again, there needs to be more work in this area, but we are starting to hear and see some wage pressure. Now, there's some recent work done by Mike Dotsey and his colleagues here at the Philly Fed Research Department on the Phillips curve. And so the conclusion of that work is, if it's whether it's dead or not, for the last several decades, it's not been a very good predictor of inflation, period. And there may be other metrics and other measures that are better predictors of inflation than what we've traditionally thought of with the Phillips curve. So that is the one thing, if you think of our dual mandate, that is problematic is inflation. The job market seems to be incredibly healthy on average. Again, there are pockets where we need to bring people off the sidelines uh, into the labor force and help them get the skills they need to, to, and that's something we're doing here in Philadelphia with uh, what we're calling the Economic Growth and Mobility Project, is working with communities, trying to do research and outreach in that area. Things like apprenticeship programs. We just put out a report on apprenticeship programs that are not just in, they're not your, your mother's and father's apprenticeship programs. They're no longer just in the trades. But you're seeing it in IT and healthcare, financial services. Apprenticeships are now becoming, as the market's gotten tight, one way for companies to get the talent they need. So on inflation, we are running below our 2% target. And that, now, for, only for bankers and, and central bankers is this a concern, that, oh my gosh, we're behind on the 2% target. The average American walking out in the street right there saying, I have a job. Inflation's 1.5%. Life is good. And the Eagles won an amazing game last week, right? So, <laughs> I mean, what's wrong with this picture? Everything's great. Well, of course, there are risks uh, to when it comes to... Uh, bankers would like higher margin, that, you know, obviously spreads. And we have risk of if and when a, another negative shock hits the economy, uh, having the leg room to be able to, to move rates down, that is a problem. So... Inflation is the one area that uh, does give us a little bit of pause, gives me pause. And it's a complicated story, right? And it may be that the Phillips curve or Phillips curve-like mechanisms will reassert themselves. But there's also work being, being done here in Philly led by Leonard Nakamura that uh, is pretty persuasive that we may be overstating inflation, even as low as it is. And as a result, we may be understating productivity growth in the economy. And, you know, Leonard's favorite example is the iPhone. We no longer have a GPS. We no longer have all these other things. It's all on the phone. We no longer have a Game Boy. I used that uh, once at a college campus, and nobody knew what I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so we no longer have all those things because we have the iPhone uh, 10 years out. But we don't know how to capture that shift in the statistics. We can do it hedonically in retrospect, but in real time for policymakers, we're having a hard time figuring out how to capture that. So I think that then what leads me uh, to be, as a policymaker, to say, well, given that, let's just let things play out a little bit. Let's just see how the data evolves over the next several periods. Today's PCE report was weak. 
so we'll have to see how this plays out. I think hitting a pause for a little bit on uh, the Fed funds path is appropriate for two reasons. One, see the data play out. Second, we are unwinding our balance sheet, and that process will start as we announced last week at the FO, after the FOMC uh, in October. And so I think it's time to just let that play out. We'll start that process. That process, as I've said to other uh, audiences, it, we want to do this in a way that is a, as exciting as watching paint dry. Right? I mean, we want to lay this out very clearly, uh, what it is, the caps are very low, and the best estimate that I've seen is that will have an impact, the equivalent of a 25 basis point increase in the Fed funds rate over a five-year, four-year period. So we're not talking about a very large impact, but we're, we don't know for sure. And I think prudence would call for just letting that happen, see how the markets react. I've still penciled in an increase in December uh, and three increases for 18, assuming that inflation comes back. But I do emphasize the word pencil in. We'll just have to see how things evolve. So we'll keep the pencil fairly light for now. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, uh, but just to follow up on the last point you made about the uh, unwinding of the winding down of the $4.5 trillion balance sheet, uh, how long do you think the process will take? It'll take a while. Several, it'll take several years. Again, going, the question is not so much the timing, but what are we going back to? Right? That's what you really need to know. What, and there, if you just do the math, uh, so our currency... Liability, say, call it one and a half trillion, and then we have about 400 billion in a, uh, the Treasury account plus some other foreign uh, reverse repo and little things here and there. So we get up to some number, call it two trillion dollars, right? So how, the question is, how, what do we need in order to effectively run monetary policy, right? To execute monetary policy. Well, this gets into a debate about whether you want a floor, a floor system or a corridor system, and you need to know that elasticity of the demand for reserves. We've been way out, right, on that curve uh, for now quite a while, so we're not quite sure in this economy what that elasticity is. Uh, we're on the flat end for sure. And there's some view, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to this view, that a floor system makes some sense. The, the issue is we don't know when we stopping in a floor system and go into a corridor system. That is when the elasticity increases. Again, there's some recent research by some of our economists here that said, you know, that number could be as high as a trillion dollars. We just don't know. And others will say, well, it could be as low as a, a hundred billion. So given the tried and true scientific method of picking the middle, right? You, know, you pick some number in the middle and it'd get you to a, a balance sheet of two five-ish somewhere around there going forward. So that's really when we, well, but we'll know it when we get there. I mean, we'll be able to see how the market's reacting. We'll be able to respond appropriately. So, looping back now briefly to the topic of FinTech, which is we've had some fascinating conversations over the last couple of days on this. And one thing that has struck me uh, in listening to all the wonderful speakers is uh, Sometimes it seems like we almost have this tsunami of uh, financial technology innovation going on everywhere. But to what extent uh, do you see it as being revolutionary and truly disruptive? And to what extent is it evolutionary and something that can be integrated into the existing financial system? I mean, wonderful to have your overall perspective on that issue. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it, it can be both, right? It doesn't have to be one or the other. That 
There are clearly important, and we've heard from people here, important innovations happening in the market. That said, financial services have been in the business of innovating with technology for a long, long time. Right? This is not something new to financial services. It feels different now because of the just, it's not the traditional banking institutions and other institutions that are doing it. They're new incumbent, new entrants into the market. But as uh, I think the conversation yesterday when I was here, uh, we were talking about, what I think people are finding out, not everybody, but they're very good at that innovation to, to the customer. But then I've got all this compliance stuff and I've got all this other stuff I have to worry about. And it may be better to partner with uh, the institutions that know how to do that and also get scale. And this is not, uh, this is not very different than many other industries, whether it's retail or you can sort of go through the history of this innovation. Uh, there are going to be the Amazons of the world that emerge. And, but then others will figure out how to adopt this technology or partner with people and be successful. The fundamentals don't change very much, right? People still want some basic things out of the financial system. You know, access to, to credit, they want to be able to pay their bills, they want to have safe and secure funds, right? And they want to, and they want to have other services that can help them be, succeed, whether they're a business, small business, or a consumer. Uh, so I think those fundamentals are still there. It's just how we deliver them is changing, and that will continue to evolve. So I think it can be both. So in addition to the revolution versus evolution issue, the other big theme that has come up in the past couple of days is what are the key benefits of fintech and how do you, how do you see the trade-off between the risks, I mean the, 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 the benefits and the biggest risks of fintech? I think the, the, there's clearly, and you can see the uptake, again, not only in the traditional banks but also in the new entrants, there's cl clearly a desire, and I'm one of them, to, I don't walk into a branch unless I guess I want to yell at somebody. That's about the only reason I, <laughs> I would. I, I mean, so I'm a, I've, I enjoy having access to all the mobile platforms and all the ability to do that. And I think that's the advantage that we're seeing across the board, right? And so hopefully we'll also see an advantage uh, of people who are marginalized in the financial system being able to get access to the financial system. I think for me that's more aspirational right now, but I think it's really important. And I think it's important for the system that we have, continue to have ubiquity, that everybody can have access and, and, and plug into the financial system. And in particular, if there are entrants who are coming into the market who can bring the unbanked into the market, help educate them about how to create a sound financial future for themselves, we're all better off as an economy. Uh, the risk, I think, the large risk, is that m many, not all, but many of the new entrants were born in a period where they've never seen a deep downside of a business cycle. Right. And banks generally have been through that. They know how to manage that risk. If there's a concern I have, is that the institutions, to make sure they have the proper risk procedures uh, and policies to protect themselves when that happens. We will, I'm not saying when, because nobody really knows when, but we will have that downside of the business cycle. 
and to make sure that institutions are protected and hence consumers are protected uh, in that process, I think is critical. FinTech is such a catch-all phrase, it's so vast. Yeah. Uh, next uh, few minutes I was wondering if we could drill a little deeper into some specific areas of FinTech. And one question that came up yesterday that was very interesting was in the session with the OCC's uh, acting controller. Uh, when, uh, one, there was some discussion about the fact that Barclays, Credit Suisse, and many of the large financial institutions have now formed a consortium to create a digital, digital currency. Right. Japan also, as you may have uh, seen in the Financial Times this week, some leading Japanese banks are creating their own digital currency. I think it's called the JCoin, with the support of Japan's central bank. Looking to the U.S., do you believe that the creation of these digital currencies will threaten the ability of central banks to maintain control of money supply? I'm not sure yet. I, I, at this point, I would be on the side of sort of doubting that for a couple of reasons. One, I agree with the acting controller that we should let the market evolve and see how this technology evolves, and we should not whether we can create a sandbox or other ways of doing it so that people can have the ability to innovate. That said, I think we have to, some of the fundamentals haven't changed. Um, for the economy as a whole, this, the paper that's in your pocket that we call money only has value because we believe it has value, because we believe that the government stands behind it. Right? It's all a trust issue. And so, whether cryptocurrencies and other forms of currency emerge, I think the basis of that has to be how do they create that trust. In the case of a central bank-issued digital currency, it is the government standing behind it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the sovereign state standing behind it. You could have other models of that happening, but they have to play out over time. Uh, because, again, everything's, everything can work in good times. It's when the bad times hit. Uh, and the other issue I am personally concerned about is whether, uh, whether it's a government-issued or a central bank-issued uh, digital currency or another large player comes in and issues this digital currency. When things really go bad, where do Americans turn, right? I mean, if things really turn, turned out bad, well, they're going to come back to the government. That's been the history of the country uh, in recent vintage. And so we'd have to think through that. And I, I, again, this is one where we're not ready for this yet. We're seeing it evolve. But it is something we continue to study, and I continue to study and learn from, and the experience of others who have done this. To make sure that things don't go bad, the role of the regulator is very critical. Yeah. And, and, and the question there is, how can you regulate in such a way that you mitigate the risks that you are talking about? And even more fundamentally, how do you regulate an algorithm? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know yet. I think the, the answer is we have to continue to study this. And as these technologies evolve and the innovation evolves in the market, we need to continue to, to work and study uh, how this is evolving. Um, the issue of regulating an algorithm is interesting. One of my colleagues, a computer scientist, is doing some interesting work on fairness in uh, machine learning algorithms. If you think about all of you in this room and everybody's adopting machine learning algorithms, 
But how do you plug into that some sense of fairness, right? Whether it's a, required by a regulatory constraint or just you believe that's part of your business, the right way of doing business. Um, that's actually a lot harder than it sounds, uh, apparently. It's a very difficult thing to do. So before we even think about how do you regulate uh, an algorithm, how would you even build an algorithm that would have that sense of fairness in it is a, a technical, but a fairly deep technical question. The, fa the fairness issue is, is especially interesting because the presentation that we just heard this morning about how important financial inclusion is as, as a dimension of fintech. When we, ju we just heard presentations from you know, companies that are being so proactive in bringing unbanked and underbanked populations and lowering their costs of borrowing, et cetera. How do you see the relationship between uh, fintech and financial inclusion? Oh, I think done right and done well, uh, it can have a tremendous impact. Uh, but we also have to recognize that we are human beings. We are flawed human beings. And there are also players in the market who are, are behaving in different ways. And so you hear these stories all the time. I hear these stories constantly of small business in particular getting into a situation where they didn't quite know what they signed up for. And then they walk into their community bank and say, I got to get out of this deal. It's killing me. Right? I signed up online for this thing. Um, and I thought it sounded good, but I didn't really understand it, I guess. And now I'm really in trouble. And so there are good actors and bad actors in any industry. Financial services is not very different than anything else. And I think that that is the role of the regulators, and not just at the national level, but even if there was no national you know, OCC charter for a fintech company, there's still state regulatory requirements with respect to fairness to the consumer and, and so forth. So there's always going to be some form of regulation. And my message to the fintech companies is get involved with the regulators early and often to start forming what makes sense to protect the people who want to do it right. Right, because I think that can protect the innovation, right? This sphere of innovation that you all need and we want as an economy. But if there's too many bad actors in there, that can stifle that innovation, right? It can squash, because we know how re regulation goes. It's always been this case. We tend to overreact to a crisis. When something bad happens, the pendulum swings too far. It's better to be in the, the conversation right now about what those regulations look like now whether it's at the national level or at the state level. Well, one area where consumers especially need to be protected is because of what's happening with cybersecurity, yeah. uh, especially in the wake of uh, what's happened with Equifax. Right. Uh, what is your view about the cybersecurity environment and how should consumers be protected? So I think one of the big challenges for consumers right now, and actually this, we had a pretty robust conversation with a group of bankers the other day, so everybody can try to protect that account at that bank. But the consumer needs to figure out how to protect themselves. And increasingly, that's not just in financial data, but it's health data. You can go down the list of all the things, your identity. It, it creates challenges for the consumer and for the financial institutions. We were talking, I know, throughout the conference on AML and, and BSA. Uh, that's going to get harder. I mean, much harder. How do you really know your customer? 
I mean, especially if you've never, even if you physically see them, given how much data and information is now out there about all of us, how do we, how do we change the system? How do we innovate to protect my identity, not just my financial identity, so every, it, all of us, because we got hacked here when OPM got hacked, so everybody in the Fed has you know, credit fraud detection and so forth, but we have to continue to innovate in this space too. I actually worry about this a lot because if we don't do this, again, a lot of the innovation that you are all fostering can be really stifled when, when customers just say, yeah, I'm going back to microfiche and coins. Because <laughs> <laughs> right? I've been hacked so many times and I've lost so much money and it's such a hassle to keep trying to clean up my credit or my health records or my false tax returns that somebody put into the IRS that, man, I'm just dropping out of this. That would be a dangerous step, I think, for the industry, all of you. But what it means, though, is some innovative players have to come in with, I think, different ways of thinking about how to protect our identity. Just have a couple of final questions before we open it up for everyone else. Looking to the future, uh, maybe two or three years, what is your most optimistic and your most pessimistic scenario about fintech? And between the two, since you said yes to one question before, what is your most realistic scenario? <laughs> so I think the optimistic one is, we were just talking about, that fintech not only reaches the consumers that have deep pockets, but also starts to bring the marginalized uh, consumer into the market, right, in that financial inclusion. That's critically important for the economy. Um, the negative is that, again, whatever it is, there's continued hacking or there are regulatory issues that stop the innovation in this industry, right? That just, you, you can see if there's, if we don't get this right, and if the consumer doesn't learn to trust these innovations, they simply will not happen, right? And so it's all a trust game. And so I think that's the realistic scenario is there are going to be people who do it well. There are going to be people that don't do it well, people who succeed, people who don't. That's the market. And I think we just need to make sure that we as regulators continue to uh, make the playing field level and not get in the way to the extent we stifle this innovation. And let me ask one last question before we open it up. What is the biggest prevailing myth about fintech? And if you could say one thing today to dispel it, what would that be? So for my kids, somehow, it's that um, money magically appears in an account. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's probably the biggest myth. Like, I, I don't know. That may not be limited to fintech. No. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, at least when they had to steal it out of my, you know, drawer in my bedroom. <laughs> but now it's just you know, that somehow a lot of the basic rules of financial services and, uh, don't seem to apply. Um, also, the other myth, which I am very concerned about with my three millennial children, is not all technology is equal. Some, some of this stuff, you're putting yourself out there at tremendous risk uh, because it's not very secure. They don't think about that. And so I think that's one of the, uh, the, the big myths that I know you are all concerned about and we're concerned about as well. That, that, that's a great point. And on that note, let's open it up. And uh, uh, who, who wants to go first? Yeah. 
Hey, um, Michael at CoinDesk here, and um, thank you for asking about the um, the, the 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 work with Utility Settlement Coin. Um, I'm also curious what your thoughts are on the possibility of uh, maybe someday issuing fiat on a blockchain. Is that something that you're exploring? Well, I think there's there's work going on right now in terms of more exploration of uh, and watching what is evolving in the market, not just here in the U.S. but globally. I don't think we're ready to do that yet. Um, but it is worth continuing to study. I, I don't think at this point, though, I would say, at least for me personally, I don't, I don't know enough yet, and I don't, I don't think we collectively know enough yet to be able to make that decision. Right here. No, here. Uh, this is Will from University of Chicago. Do have a question for uh, President uh, Harker. You mentioned about the optimistic uh, outcome where there's more financial inclusion. Um, I think uh, there's also a lot of discussion related to fintech on democratizing financial services or kind of disintermediation, so to, to redistribute the surplus to either consumers or uh, some new entrants in the market. Uh, what's your view on that? Is, is that a function that FinTech is already performing and can optimist, optimistically perform well in future? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think you really have to break down the services. I, I don't think you can give, at least in my mind, an answer for financial service services writ large, right? It's service by service, sort of what, what kind of things uh, could be, will be disintermediated or continued disintermediation. I mean, that's the other thing. It's not like all of a sudden that this is happening. It's been happening for a while. Uh, so it really, I think it really depends on the actual service itself. And that, to me, comes down to, uh, you look at, take two completely different industries. Having just bought and sold a house, I used a real estate agent. Why? Because I don't buy and sell a house very often. As opposed to, I don't use a travel agent. Why? Because I travel a lot. And so I think some of it is the, the familiarity with the service for the consumer uh, and the opaqueness of the information. That's real, very clear in the real estate uh, business. Uh, you don't see a lot of, there's not a lot of transparency into some of the things that happen. So I, I think if you, you map out, you parse out what financial services provide, there are going to be some services that people use on a routine basis. They easily can get the trust to do it, they can, and people can be disintermediated. There are others that people do on a very infrequent basis, and there, there may be some disintermediation, but often, if I'm really sort of lost, I, I need to find somebody that knows what they're doing because I don't think I know what I'm doing. Right? Because the disintermedi disintermediation assumes, makes a big assumption, right, in my mind, that Everybody is a rational actor that can be fully informed on this thing. Well, that's just not true, right? There's, A, some things that I, real estate's a good example. No matter how hard I tried, those local agents have more inside information about the market than I can ever get, right? And so I just, there's no way, no matter which website I go on, I can't find out about the plumber who put in that work in that house, whether it was good or bad, right? It's just hard. The second thing is there are a lot of things I could do it, but I just don't want, it's just not worth my time 
to worry about it, right? So yeah, I, because it, it takes so many cycles in my brain to think about this, and I only have so many in, in my life, and I'm not going to spend some on, on these things, right? I'm just going to let somebody else do it and, and not worry about it. So I think it really depends on those specific markets and the taste of the consumers, right? So it's, there'll be different flavors for different people. There'll be different types of people, but there'll be different players in the market too, and there'll be a matching issue. So I, I think there'll clearly be disintermediation. That's just been the nature of what we've seen in many other uh, evolutions of technology. But how it turns out, it'll really depend on the specific service. One, yeah, here's a question here. Thank you, President Harker. It's very interesting uh, remarks. Going back to Moko's question about the framework that the Fed would eventually return to, on Wednesday, the New York Fed uh, published a blog post that linked the ability to pay the interest on excess reserves exclusively to going back to a floor system. I was wondering if you think that the Fed would need continue to need the ability to pay interest on excess reserves if they went back to a corridor system, or would a corridor system with a floor at zero be acceptable? Yeah, that's a really good question. So. I mean, just to put it in context for those who are not deeply immersed in monetary policy world, uh, if you're in a floor system, uh, what defines the floor? Well, uh, it should be the Fed funds rate, but the trading in the Fed funds rate, the reason there's no demand is there's very little uh, trading in the Fed funds market. So Congress, prior to the uh, Great Recession, gave the Fed the authority to pay interest on excess reserves. Uh, and during the crisis, asked the Fed to accelerate its implementation so that we had that tool. That creates a floor. It's a leaky floor uh, because it's only open to certain players in the market. The overnight reverse repo market actually provides the floor floor. And so the, the Fed funds trade uh, between those two. Uh, so... If we, went, if we truly went back to something that was a corridor system, uh, we wouldn't need to have that tool in the same way, assuming we can stay in that corridor system. I think right now it is imprudent to remove that tool in any way, shape, or form. I mean, it is what we have right now. Without it, we will have a very difficult time. The New York desk would have an incredibly difficult time trying to execute what the Federal Open Market Committee says Raise, I mean, so the committee says, open market desk, thou shalt raise the Fed funds within its 25 basis point range. And they need the tools to do that. Right now, IOER is really the only one they have, along with the overnight reverse repo. Maybe one, one last question, perhaps? No, I think you, oh, yeah. You know, one of, in one of your responses to questions earlier, you said something about come and talk to the regulators frequently. The problem, is, I, as I see it, um, is that which regulator? So many of, these, many of these new business models we see sort of fall in the interstices between different types of models. Oh, yeah. Is Bitcoin a security? Is it a currency? So who do you talk to? I mean, there doesn't seem to be that much coordination between the regulatory agencies in trying to figure out what to do in the scenario here. Right? Yeah, you know, that's a, that is a fair criticism, but actually that's why I think meetings like this are really important. Uh, 
Because if that, when I mean talk, it isn't that we just have to sit over coffee and, and chat, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. But I think we are collectively trying to figure this out. Right? I mean, I think it is a fair criticism that we haven't completely figured it out because, frankly, nobody's completely figured it out because it's a fast-moving target. And so I think these kind of gatherings uh, really matter. And the follow-up from these kind of gatherings, continuing the conversations, uh, really are, are important. I think there is a movement within the soup and reg community uh, across at least the federal agencies uh, to have some, start to have some deeper conversations. Uh, but honestly, in this case, uh, you know, as a still a, a dyed-in-the-wool academic, I actually think the academic community can play an incredibly important role here in both providing the research, the different perspectives, and some of the convening. Yes, we can do these convenings, but I think it's also important for academic institutions uh, to play a, a critical role in this area. When, again, when you see this kind of somewhat hazy future of what this is going to look like, and that's starting to happen. I mean, one of my colleagues, Bill Lawfer at Wharton, just had a conference. He's a lawyer, and so they had a conference that's more on the regulatory front uh, at Penn uh, last week. The more of those we have, the more we talk about this, the better off we'll be. With that, I think it's uh, time to thank you, Pat, for your wonderful uh, comments and insights. And please join me in thanking Pat. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.